You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Thursday, February 11th. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Briar Patch Food Co-op, Certified Organic Produce Department featuring winter fruits and veggies from local farms, including First Rain Farm, Mountain Bounty Farm, and Starbright Acres Family Farm. 290 Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley. Tonight, following regional weather, we'll speak with Taylor Wolf, Nevada County's Public Information Officer, about the rollout of the new vaccine appointment website. Then, we'll hear a short message from Hospitality House, followed by this week's Bravehearts, and then we close the newscast with an essay by Molly Fisk. Here are today's headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Democratic prosecutors in former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial finished laying out their case today. House impeachment managers saying the rioters who stormed the U.S. Capitol last month were acting on the president's orders to try to undo Joe Biden's election victory. And lead House impeachment manager Jamie Raskin questioned why Trump failed to stop the riot once it had started. As our constitutional commander-in-chief, Why did he do nothing to send help to our overwhelmed and besieged law enforcement officers for at least two hours on January 16th after the attack began? Trump's lawyers will begin presenting their case tomorrow. President Biden said today he thinks some minds may be changed by the manager's presentation that was done finished today. Democrats will need at least 17 Republicans to break ranks in order to convict Trump. The Biden administration has secured more doses of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines and other doses already under contract will arrive earlier than initially expected. Here's NPR's Sydney Lupkin. The United States will have enough Pfizer and Moderna vaccine doses to immunize most Americans by the end of July. President Biden announced Thursday that his administration finalized deals to purchase an additional 200 million doses from the companies. He also said that the companies have agreed to move up the delivery dates for other doses originally due by June. Now Pfizer and Moderna will have to deliver those by the end of May, Biden says. That's a month faster. That means lives will be saved. That means we're now on track to have enough supply for 300 million Americans by the end of July. And if the Food and Drug Administration authorizes the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, 100 million more doses of that should be delivered by the end of June. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. The man accused of carrying out a fatal mass shooting this week at a health center in Minnesota also allegedly set off pipe bombs inside that building. As Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports, prosecutors have filed charges against 67-year-old Gregory Ulrich. Ulrich is charged with murder, attempted murder, using explosives, and carrying a gun without a permit. Wright County Attorney Brian Lutz says Ulrich shot five people, one fatally, and set off three pipe bombs before surrendering. Gregory Ulrich went to Alina Clinic knowing that he was going to shoot up that clinic. Gregory Ulrich went to that clinic knowing that he was going to explode bombs at the clinic. Lutz says investigators recovered a fourth unexploded pipe bomb inside the building. 37-year-old medical assistant Lindsay Overbay was killed in the attack and leaves behind a husband and two children. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Buffalo, Minnesota. Stocks again waver between small losses and gains today. The Dow was down seven points to 31,430. The Nasdaq closed up 53 points. The S&P 500 gained six points today. You're listening to NPR.
Interior Department officials say they're rolling back some of former President Trump's directives giving state and local officials power to purchase blocks of land and water for conservation purposes. Acting Interior Secretary Scott De La Vega today rescinding an order from the former secretary criticized by both parties in Congress. The Trump administration had said the order would allow the government to concentrate on fulfilling goals set when conservation areas were created by filling in missing pieces rather than expanding the government's holdings. The writing continues to flow for Canada's aerospace giant Bombardier. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the Montreal-based company has announced the end of the Learjet. Production of the Learjet will end later this year as Bombardier focuses more on the Challenger and global aircraft lines. Bombardier says it will also cut 1,600 jobs as it consolidates its work on other aircraft and reduces costs. The announcement was made on the heels of the company reporting a nearly $340 million loss for the quarter at the end of December. CEO Eric Martel says although difficult, the cuts are absolutely necessary to rebuild the company as it navigates through the pandemic. The cuts will bring the company's international workforce to about 13,000 by the end of the year. Bombardier says it expects business aircraft revenue this year to improve during a gradual economic recovery. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. Long-term mortgage interest rates remain at low levels for a second straight week. That's according to mortgage buyer Freddie Mac. The average 30-year fixed-rate loan stayed at 2.73%. Meanwhile, the average rate on a 15-year mortgage, a popular refinancing option, eased to 2.19%. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A state lawmaker is trying to reconcile the competing values of public and secular university hospitals and Catholic hospitals when the institutions collaborate on patient care. KQED's health correspondent April Naboski explains. For years, UC doctors and medical students have provided care at nearby Catholic hospitals as part of their training and as a way of expanding specialty care to more Californians. But UC providers are bound by Catholic Church directives that prohibit them from providing abortions, sterilizations, and gender affirmation surgery inside Catholic hospitals. Senator Scott Weiner says this makes the public university system complicit in discriminating against women and transgender patients. The fact that a UC medical professional would not be able to provide that care, I just think is honestly completely outrageous. Wiener's new bill would require UCs to either renegotiate their contracts with Catholic hospitals to allow UC staff to provide all care or to end those affiliations altogether. Lori Dangberg from the Alliance for Catholic Healthcare says now is the worst time to do that. COVID-19 is placing unprecedented demands on our state's healthcare providers. Any effort to weaken the safety net would only harm the state's most vulnerable patients. Dangberg says pressuring Catholic hospitals to allow abortions within their walls is intolerant and could jeopardize health care for tens of thousands of Californians. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. Another high-ranking California official has been tapped for a powerful job in the Biden administration. KQD's Katie Orr reports. The head of California's Labor and Workforce Development Agency, Julie Su, has been nominated by President Biden to serve as his deputy secretary of labor. 
The pick was lauded by Democratic leaders in the state. However, Sue might face some hurdles in her Senate confirmation related to California's Employment Development Department. In her role as the state's labor secretary, Sue oversaw EDD as it struggled to issue unemployment checks during the pandemic and made at least $11 billion in fraudulent payments. Sue has served as labor secretary for two years. Her defenders say she inherited an outdated EDD system. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. Relief for California renters is on the way as state officials figure out how to distribute billions of dollars in federal rental aid. But some tenant advocates are concerned the most vulnerable people will be left out, and they're urging cities and counties to do more. KQD's Molly Solomon reports. Since the start of the pandemic, nonprofits in Silicon Valley have helped more than 14,000 local families pay the rent, buy food, and keep the lights on. And a big percentage of those households don't live in places with formal leases or are families that have moved in together to save money on rent. We know in this valley it's not a secret that there are people who are living in very informal situations. Darcy Green is the executive director of Latinas Contra Cancer, one of about 70 nonprofits in Santa Clara County that has been helping distribute aid directly to people who need it the most, including many who are undocumented. They are renting garages, renting rooms. They are renting from someone else who is renting so that they can all help make the bill. California is rolling out a rental assistance program to help struggling renters and landlords. It will use $2.6 billion in federal relief to help pay off rent debt. But advocates like Green fear that many tenants might not qualify or even know how to apply. That's because the state program relies on landlords to apply. So all of those folks who are living in informal rental situations get left out or may not view this as something for them. So this week, lawmakers in Santa Clara County approved what they're calling a hybrid approach. People with leases and landlords can still go to the state portal to apply for aid. But for people who don't, rent relief will be available through the local nonprofits that have been doing it since the pandemic began. Maya Esparza is on the San Jose City Council. I think we're able to help the most vulnerable people in our city and prevent them from actually becoming homeless. And housing advocates hope cities and counties who have the capacity will follow Santa Clara County's lead. Tommy Newman is the senior director at United Way Greater Los Angeles. There's a lot of concern that the way the state program is designed, uh, we won't be able to reach deep into these overcrowded households and other communities where people are hanging on by their fingertips. Newman says those are the very people who need rental assistance the most, and he wants Los Angeles to have more flexibility to get it to them. I think we're seeing the challenge of bringing equity to all of these programs in the pandemic as being front and center. We're seeing it in who's getting vaccinations first, and yeah, we're seeing it in who's going to benefit from this rental assistance. San Francisco, Alameda County, and other large cities in California are also faced with this choice. For the California Report, I'm Molly Solomon. Later this morning, the California Public Utilities Commission will take up an issue that's critical for people living in wildfire-prone parts of the state. The California Report's Lily Jamali has more. 
During wildfires, Californians depend on their phones and Internet for crucial information like whether to evacuate. After PG&E shut off electricity to millions in 2019 to prevent its lines from sparking fires, the state started requiring telecom companies to have 72-hour backup power for cell towers. This morning, regulators will vote on whether to require backup for landlines, too. Elizabeth Eccles is the director of the commission's public advocate's office. Regardless of which technology you're using, whether you have a cell phone or a landline or both, you need to be able to use it in an emergency. It's literally a matter of life or death. Eccles says people are more reliant on landline phones and internet service now because of the pandemic. For the California Report, I'm Lily Jamali. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care on the web at chcf.org voices. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere. And that is the California Report for Thursday, February 11th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks so much for listening and have a good day. According to the National Weather Service, for the Nevada City Grass Valley area, tonight... Scattered showers mainly before 4 a.m., then heavy rain at times with a low around 38 degrees. New precipitation amounts of between 1 and 2 inches are possible. Tomorrow, there's a 20% chance of showers before 10 a.m., then mostly sunny with a high near 52. For the Tahoe-Truckee region, there is a winter weather advisory in effect tonight until 4 a.m. A few storms are likely to impact the region throughout the weekend. The first storm, tonight into tomorrow, will bring gusty winds and Sierra snow. The second is expected to arrive Saturday into Sunday, and it will bring another round of gusty winds with better chances of snow for all elevations. This storm will also bring a period of strong gusty winds to much of the Sierra, with gusts of up to 100 miles per hour. The third storm arrives early Monday morning. Travel disruptions along the Sierra passes with all of these systems are likely. Tonight, Snow before 9 p.m., then rain, and snow between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., then snow likely after 1 a.m. Tonight's low will be around 25 degrees, and new snow accumulation of 2 to 4 inches is possible. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming sunny with a high near 42. And for Sacramento, tonight, showers with a low around 44. Tomorrow, nice and sunny with a high near 62. I'm speaking with Nevada County's Public Information Officer, Taylor Wolf. Taylor, thanks very much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me on again. So I understand that California has just rolled out the the website where people can go and see if they're eligible for vaccine. I think it's uh, myturn.ca.gov. And I was hoping that you could tell our audience a little bit about it. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we at Nevada County are really excited uh, to get some of the first access to the state's MyTurn vaccine, vaccine notification and scheduling platform. Uh, the goal with this platform is really to have it be the centralized location for people not only to be notified of their eligibility, but also to find appointments. Uh, so as of yesterday, Wednesday, Nevada County was one of the first California counties to gain access to it after it came out of pilot. Um, we're releasing really, really small amounts of appointments this week as we're doing some testing and, and working out some glitches that we are running into. So it's really great that we're able to test this um, and get some some experience with the system this week as it is so new. Uh, we do expect that next week we'll be able to offer more appointments through the system throughout the week and start hopefully increasing those appointments we can make available to the community. Um, but as I think many people know, um, eligibility and the amount of supply out there is, is very different. Um, so we want to make sure we, we create adequate expectations with the community about um, when they will be able to get vaccinated in that vaccine supply. So uh, the vaccine appointments that we opened up this week filled up very quickly. Uh, although there'll be more available next week, those will likely fill up very, very quickly as well. So we want to continue to encourage people's patience through this process. Uh, we really thank everyone for their eagerness to get vaccinated to our community because that's the, the means to the end here, the light at the end of the tunnel uh, to get out of this COVID-19 pandemic. But We've been in for, for about a year now, so people can go to myturn.ca.gov to register. It takes about two to three minutes. They ask you questions to determine your eligibility, uh, like where, where your workplace uh, might be or what work, type of workplace you work in. Uh, they will also ask you your age, and that's because right now the state has both workplace eligibility requirements, but they also have age-based uh, eligibility requirements. They also have a phone number that people can call to register at if you're maybe less comfortable with registering online, and that is 1-833-422-4255. I've been speaking with Nevada County Public Information Officer Taylor Wolf about the new rollout of myturn.ca.gov. And Taylor, could you give us that phone number again for our audience that might not want to use the internet for this? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, yes, register online, myturn.ca.gov or call 1-833-422-4255 to register over the phone. Taylor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up next, a short message from Hospitality House, followed by this week's Brave Hearts, and we close with an essay by Molly Fisk. Hi, my name is Christina Karen, Marketing and Development Specialist at Hospitality House, and the needs of the shelter for this week are PPE masks and gloves. Please keep donating these. New pillows, blankets, twin size, bottled water, hand warmers, Alka-Seltzer, travel bags, headphones and earbuds, brushes and combs, hair ties, toilet paper, paper towels, men and women's winter glove, men jeans, size 30 to 36, 8 ounce paper coffee cups, no litter styrofoam cups needed, women's underwear, sizes small, medium and large, men and women's sweatpants, sizes medium, large and extra large, and two extra large, 
plastic shower curtains and attachment rings for the outreach dorms bathroom shower. Please drop off urgent items or mail them to Utah's place located in Brunswick Basin past the DMV at 1262 Sutton Way in Grass Valley. For a tax receipt, please ring the bell and wait for someone to come outside to assist you. We greatly appreciate the community's help at such times of uncertainty. In the words of Utah Phillips, if we all stick together, we'll all get what we need. Thank you. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Brave Hearts. Hello, everybody. This is Betty Louise, and I am here with my friend and colleague, Darren, who is a peer support specialist at Insight Respite Center. They don't want to get a place. They just want to be homeless. What would be your yeah. response? Well, I see where you are. I understand this, you know, I mean, that's what would be my response. I understand that you don't want to be in a home. Is it healthy for you to not be in a home? Some of these guys aged out of being able to live in the woods. There are, when, when they say it's rough sometimes, sometimes they will choose to live in communities with other people in the woods and that's where it gets dangerous. There are predators that prey on these people. They'll steal their whatever, whatever they've got. And it's kind of like a Mad Max atmosphere out there, if, yeah. I, if you will. You know, it's lawless. It's often unjust. People are, are maimed and hurt. And, and uh, it's, it's incredibly rough. So if you are aging, and I, I just ran across a guy that was about 56, I think. And he said he can no longer defend himself on the streets and he needs to transition into living into four walls and that sort of thing. And he's doing really well. Wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, even, even sometimes it's not a forever thing that people want to live out in the streets and away from people. They want to make that transition back. And that's great. We'll meet him at that too. But for people that want to be out in the woods, more power to you, mm -hmm. you know? You are connected to Turning Point and connected to the county, or all of this is under the behavioral health department right. of the county. So Insight Respite Center, how long has it been around? It's been around since 2013. Um, it was started uh, locally by some people that really, really uh, you know, saw some issues with the mental health um, programs that were available at the time, and wanted to introduce the community to, to intentional peer support. And so, you know, they got certified in that and came up with the business, the model from other states. I mean, respites are not new. They're kind of new to California, hmm. but uh, like we're just being, we're just getting certification. There's only six respites in California. There needs to be more. And that's evidenced by like, you know, the uh, consumer feedback that the county has gotten that, hey, that program is the number one program in Nevada County. We need more. We can only handle four or five people max at a time. Sometimes there might be a waiting list, you know, it's never very long, but it does happen and we have to like turn people down. I'd rather not do that. Right. I think there needs to be several different types of respites, you know, like an emergency 
respite uh, for people that might have like, you know, been evicted or whatever, that would be great. Um, there needs to be, I think, respites for specific diagnoses, uh, particularly like schizophrenia. If there was a group that, you know, could all handle that in one house, that would be great. That's, you know, one of the only drawbacks of respite is sometimes we do get people that are inappropriate for us in the way that they are more symptomatic than and need a higher level of care than we are. And that happens every once in a while where somebody has misjudged a patient, you know, while they're in the, the crisis care unit up in the county or, or at a, a PUF, which is a psychiatric hospital. They might have said, oh, you know, this person's okay to go back and they're not quite, and we will discover that. But unfortunately, other clients might too. So we try to remove them as fast as we can to get them to a higher care of health. But, you know, that is one of the, one of the risks. I feel like programs like this, and I'm hearing about a couple of others, like this Northern Queen program where they're bringing people in for 50 days to a hotel room. It feels like this is movement. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. Coming up next, an essay by Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. So now the year swings around again to Valentine's Day, that hallmark holiday promoted within an inch of its life to sell chocolate, red roses, and, more recently, extremely small items of see-through underwear. When I'm single on Valentine's Day, I wonder if it's a plot to remind the unattached that they're unloved. Red doily hearts in store windows make me resentful and crabby. And the part of me that wanted to be a ballerina when I was nine, and still occasionally dreams of silk wedding gowns, feels bereft and then manipulated. I am sometimes tempted at this time of year to ram my grocery cart into the candy display and watch the whole thing collapse. I know this is not adult behavior, but there you have it. When I'm coupled up on Valentine's Day, the holiday seems ridiculous. Why arbitrarily designate a day for love when so many days are full of love and also chocolate? Why put obligation on your partner in this artificial way? What a setup for expectations and inevitable disappointment. It also drives me nuts how narrowly imagined the chocolate and roses thing is. It's such an enormous cliché, repeated doggedly year after year. Why not strike a blow for freedom, break out of the darn sea's chocolate box, and at least send yellow roses? Use your imagination. Give her beloved jasmine and ginger snaps, or orchids and Chinese plum sauce, things that are equally sensuous but not so familiar. Or better yet, get creative and make something. Write a poem to your sweetheart. Or if poems terrify you, just make a list of what you love about him or her. And be specific. Paying attention is a clear sign of love. List all sorts of things. The grace with which she lifts a coffee cup. The efficient dispatch they bring to packing a car's trunk. Describe the sexy things, too, but don't limit your list to them. Intimacy exists in so many surprising places. 
I should admit that despite all this grumbling, I love a romantic gesture as much as the next person. I just think they should be inventive. I gave my best Valentine, so far, one year when I was living in Cambridge. It snowed three feet on February 13th, and at midnight I went out in my snow boots, wrapped to the gills in muffler, hat, and mittens, to find my boyfriend Dennis's white Volkswagen. I was armed with five tubes of lipstick and a box of Kleenex. I spent an hour, the snow falling lightly around me in that timeless hush that snow brings, applying the different colors of lipstick and wiping spots on his car clean of winter grime so I could leave kiss prints. My lips didn't freeze to the metal surface because lipstick is sort of greasy, which was also good since it stopped the snow from washing the prints away. I kissed that car 50 times, and Dennis said later that he and it overheated for weeks afterwards. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear it again, you can do so at our website, kvmr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. The Climate Report is next, followed by Democracy Now! at 7 p.m. Have a good evening. Ha <laughs> ha